So if you were to write something down in that personal sermon notes box, like in a place that I don't have already filled up, uh, how would you answer this question? Uh, What is the gravest danger that we face as Christians in the West in the 21st century, both as individuals and as a church? What's the gravest danger? I have some guesses as to what many of you might put down there. Some of them might even be the same as me. Now, this past week, I spent three days in Chicago. Our national church body put on a conference on Lutheran leadership. Uh, There were five keynote speakers. There were about 40 different breakout sessions that you could choose to go to. There were about 1,300 people there who worshiped together, prayed, praised, and gave thanks to God together, who received the bread and the wine and the body and blood of Jesus together. It was an incredible experience. Now, the keynotes weren't the kind of the highlight for me, although they were all very good. The, the highlight, the, the thing that I really enjoyed was one of the breakouts. It was a breakout by uh, a man who's a pastor and now a professor at Wisconsin Lutheran College. He is a professor of theology and apologetics. So he spends his days teaching young men and women not only what the Bible teaches, but then how to defend what the Bible says, what it is that they believe. Now, his, uh, his whole... Um, breakout session was called Critical Theory, the Good, the Bad, and the Absurd. But ironically enough, the the big takeaway I had came when he diverted away at the end, took a little detour, and and just wanted to sort of speak off the cuff. And that's ultimately, that was my big takeaway. He said the gravest danger that we face as Christians in the 21st century is complacency with what we know and love, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you, when you become complacent with what you know and love, well, then you lose. When you become complacent with the gospel, the, the means through which God brings you into a saving relationship with him, and the same means which he uses to strengthen you with him, there ends up being a gospel-sized hole in your heart that, that starts out small. And when you become complacent with that, and you have this gospel-sized hole in your heart, well, then you begin to chase other things to fill that. And the longer that you fill your hearts with something other than the gospel, take the tenets of critical theory, well, the less the gospel is filling your heart. And the less the gospel fills your heart, the harder it is for you and I to distinguish between good, solid, biblical teaching and the teachings of modern philosophy. When you become complacent with what you know and love, with the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, well, then we lose and Satan wins. That professor, and I would wholeheartedly agree with him, said that the gravest danger that we face is complacency. Complacency with the gospel. Because when we become complacent with that thing that God uses to save us, well then we begin to search and chase after other things to do what only the gospel is meant to do. That is probably the gravest danger. Now what is it that you know and love? What is the heart and core of the gospel? I think it's good that we spend a little time talking about that because Paul does in Colossians chapter 2. He actually gives us a really good summary of what this all is. He says, In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. So if you'd permit me a summary, a summation of Paul's summary, this would be the first blank on your on your service folder, the first fill in the blank, we cling to an incarnational theology. An incarnational theology. We believe, 
and we cling to Jesus, the one that John the Baptist pointed to as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, we believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And in that Messiah, true God and true man, all the fullness of the deity dwells. We believe in a God who came down and took on flesh and blood for us, a God who assumed humanity. And in that person of Jesus, all the fullness of the deity dwells. It lives in flesh and blood like you and me. We believe that Jesus and cling to a Jesus who is God and everything that is God's and everything that is God and everything that belongs to God dwells in a way that now people can see, that people can touch, that people can approach without bringing instantaneous death. We believe that this Messiah, God in the flesh, is the divine Lugus, the eternal word. He is the one through whom all creation was brought into being and the one in whom creation lives and moves and still has its being. We believe that this eternal word is the reason why up is up and down is down and four plus four is eight and not 27 all day long every day. Like that's the reason why, because Christ holds all things together. This, this is the theology we cling to, an incarnational theology that says God became man for you and me. And what is it that God in the flesh did for you and me? Well, Paul has a pretty good summary of that too. Well, you were dead in your sins and transgressions. Christ made you alive, or God made you alive. He took away all of our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took away our sins by nailing them to the cross. Here Paul steals a business term to talk about our debt. That term written code, it was a, a first century Greco-Roman, it was probably a little older than that, but first century Greco-Roman term that meant a certificate that was written in the hand of a debtor for how much debt he owed to somebody. And so Paul here is talking about the Mosaic code, which makes all of us, the Mosaic law of God, which makes all of us debtors before God. And every time that we have a misspent moment, a misspoken word, an evil action, either against God or our neighbor, with every single one of those actions we take and we write our code of debt. And that code of debt, that certificate of debt, is so big and so large that you and I can bring it before the holy, perfect God, but there is nothing. There is no amount of payment we can offer, no amount of work that we can give, no amount of praise and give thanks that we can show God in order to cancel our debt. But you know what God does with that written code that, that condemns us, that stands against us? Paul says he literally obliterates it. He crushes that stone and he scatters it to the four corners of the earth, never to be able to be assembled again. And the way that he does this is by taking it and nailing it to his son on the cross. And now, because of that, you have forgiveness. You have peace. God has made you alive. This is not the very message of the gospel. This is not the very thing that God takes to give you life. And yet it is the thing that we are in the gravest danger of becoming complacent with. And when we come, become complacent with the gospel, we lose. And we end up chasing something other than that which gives us life. This is the very real danger that the Apostle Paul was dealing with. He saw come to life in a city called Colossae. Now the Apostle Paul had spent about three years in another city in that same general area called Ephesus. And, and while he was in Ephesus, he he met this man named Epaphras, and Epaphras, or to Epaphras, he preached this gospel that you and I have and know and love, and, 
And God used that gospel to create saving and sustaining faith in Epaphras' heart until then Epaphras was sent out knowing and loving that thing that you and I love and taking it to a place called Colossae where he started a number of churches. And while those churches were in their infancy, they came under attack, a heretical or a false teaching attack. So that false teaching wasn't from the outside, it came from within, the same way that you and I, the, with the same kind of danger that you and I are. Now, the thing that, that Paul was battling, this heretical attack, it was an early form of what is known as Gnosticism. So the word Gnosticism, it comes from a Greek word that means knowledge. And so much like our, our current age today is made up of a bunch of different teachings. So think like um, existentialism and humanism and pluralism and positivism and hedonism, which is like the pursuit of pleasure. Just like our modern age has a bunch of different teachings that combine to make secularism, well, so Gnosticism was a combination of a bunch of different teachings. It was a combination of Jewish ceremonialism, of human wisdom and philosophical knowledge. It was a combination of asceticism, like a, a deprivation, a harsh treatment of your body. And also, all of that was combined with uh, Christian teaching that Paul had taught these people through Epaphras, and it made up Gnosticism. And it was seeking to divide this church in Colossae. Now, the main idea behind Gnosticism is that spirit is good, material, bad. Material is like the world, our bodies, um, even relationships that you have, it's all bad. So, so what Gnosticism would say to these people within the church is that you should go and avoid all bad things, right? Material is bad. Get rid of everything bad in your life and work hard to do that so that you can, can become more spiritual. But in order to do that, what did you have to do? You had to treat the vessel that God has given you, your body, the temple of the Holy Spirit, you had to treat this badly. There were certain rules, you couldn't, there were things you couldn't touch, that you couldn't eat, that you couldn't drink, certain people you couldn't be around. And the more harshly you treated your body, the more material things you were ridding yourself of until a point where you became more spiritual. And the more spiritual that you got, the closer to spirit that you got, the more access you had to secret knowledge. Secret knowledge. Now, where did the secret knowledge come from? It's a good question, right? Scholars don't know. The, uh, the, I don't even think the Gnostics could really tell you, but I can tell you where it didn't come from. Uh, Gnosticism, especially as it, as it developed later on, had a deep mistrust of, of institutions. And guess what is an institution? The church. And what does the church proclaim? Not secret knowledge, the knowledge that God has revealed to us. So we know that they didn't get this knowledge from the church because they hated and distrusted the church. They even went as far to say that the church is a spiritual enemy. So they would seek after, or they, I should say this, they exchanged the revealed truth of God for something that was more experiential, something more personal, something secretive. So then what, if we don't really know where they got it, but do we know what it is, this secret knowledge? No. But the Gnostics sure love to talk about having the secret knowledge. They treated it as kind of the spiritual elitism that existed. And for the Gnostics that Paul was dealing with, it, salvation for them wasn't the way that the Bible defines salvation. Salvation for them, instead of being bought back from your sin through the blood of Jesus, salvation was, was chiefly championed in terms of, of a bunch of different ways to overcome the world to overcome history, to overcome the natural in this world, and it was through a process of spiritual ascent. 
right? This is the thing that Paul is dealing with. And that's a very, I mean, there are whole huge tomes written about what is the Colossian heresy in the first century problem. There are huge tomes written about this. And this is the problem that Paul is dealing with. The thing that was dividing the church and causing people to become complacent with that which they know and love. And I wonder if Paul, if he were alive in the 21st century, I wonder if he would be shocked to see that the very thing he fought against in the first century in churches is now alive and well. I wonder if he would be shocked that Gnosticism never really left, but it has truly come back in a stronger and probably worse form than it was before. Now, nobody would probably call it new Gnosticism, but I want you to know that Gnosticism is alive and well in the church. And you see this if you pay close enough attention, that largely today, the, the true biblical teaching has been, ex, has been exchanged for personal experience. That corporate worship, like what we are doing here this morning, gathering around the word, or if it was a communion Sunday, word and sacrament has been exchanged for personal worship. And the whole idea is this. If, if God dwells in my heart and in yours, and therefore the truth dwells in my heart, well then, what need do I really have of an institution like the church, which really has done a whole lot of harm over the centuries? What need do I have to to more deeply study the word of God? If I already have the truth here, why can't I just go out and find God in nature? Find God in ways he makes sense to me. Find mm, Find God that is more appealing to me. Right, new Gnosticism that is alive and well in the church has, has really gotten rid of objective truth and exchanged it for personal transformation. That's really what Christianity has become in a lot of modern places. It's all just about how do I, how do I become a better person? You see this a lot and hear it a lot in modern preaching. So instead of a proclamation of objective truth, what, what people end up chasing is, well, here are 10 steps to, to living a better marriage. Here are 10 steps to re- being a better father, five steps for succeeding in your career. Really, what modern Christianity has become sounds a whole lot like what, well, first century Gnosticism did. It's all about becoming better and better and getting rid of that which is bad in your life so that you can become a better person, so you can live a better Christian life. I think it's, it's probably preached under those auspices. Boy, that sounds a lot like the ancient heresy that Paul was dealing with. And it's easy to see that heresy in things outside of the church, that problem outside of the church, like in, like in transcendental meditation, which is often attached to what? Do you know? It's an athletic exercise. Yoga, right? It's often attached to yoga. Or to see it in things like the, the growth in interest in things like the occult, where people have become more and more interested in the spirit world, right? But the sad part, and I would say even the saddest part, is that these things more and more often are coming from within the church and they are seeking to divide the church and they are carrying away people who should know better, but they don't. You want two examples maybe of of ways that you see this happening? Coming from Christians, from a place of power and authority and people who have a platform. You ever hear the show, uh, the reality show, Real Housewives of fill in the blank, like Real Housewives of Dallas, Real Housewives of... Atlanta, you know, things like that. I know it's a silly example, but you'll, you'll see why I'm bringing this up. Well, the, one of the shows, Real Housewives of Dallas, is filled with uh, a, a bunch of Christian ladies, people who openly profess that they are Christian, but you know what they've become increasingly obsessed with? Crystals and shamanism. So the idea behind these crystals is that, is that you place them in different places in your house and they, they get rid of the bad juju, 
They get rid of the bad energy in your, in your house so that it leaves room for good energy to be there, more positive things. And they also wear them around their wrists and around their necks for that same purpose. Chase away the bad, both in the present and in the past, and leave yourself for more. And they use shamans in the same way. They bring in these self-proclaimed shamans to burn sage and wave it all around them and chase away the bad. Right? That's, that's kind of the idea for some of this stuff. And, uh, oh, these, these ladies, they profess openly to be Christian. Openly. And they have a huge platform of a reality television show. And there are a lot of people who, when they speak, people listen. A lot of people who are Christians who see this, who then think, well, these Christians are doing this. Why can't I bring crystals and shamanism into my life? Another example is a, a lady named Rachel Hollis. You ever hear of Rachel Hollis? She's a blogger. She's an influencer. She's an author. She's written books like Girl, Wash Your Face, Girl, Stop Apologizing. And for a long time, these books could be found in the Christian part of a bookstore. Now they're probably more in the self-help section. Um, but she is a, a self-professed Christian, but in her own words, she's like the most liberal Christian ever. So take that for what it's worth. But the thing that she's been really obsessed with and, and been telling people to do is this thing called manifesting. You ever hear this? Manifesting? Manifesting is the idea that... Uh, by speaking something often enough and, and by thinking deeply about it long enough that, that you can just will something into existence. Manifesting is, a, is all it is is a, a redefining of faith, right? So instead of faith being a simple trust in the word of God, faith in, in the promises that he makes you, manifesting is man-centered. It's all about who you are and what you do and the strength you have to bring this together, to make it happen in your life. Rachel Hollis is a woman who has 40 million downloads a year on her podcast, 1.6 million followers on Instagram. So when she speaks and when she posts stuff, people listen. And there are plenty of Christians who don't know or who should know better, but they don't, who see something or somebody talking about this thing called manifesting and think, oh, well, this is okay. It's okay to redefine, whether they think about it like this or not, redefine something as simple as faith and turn it into something that it is not. Do you know what Paul calls Apostle Paul calls these things, both ancient and modern. He says this, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by hollow and deceptive philosophies, which depend on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. He calls them hollow, calls them deceptive. And yet there are so many people being taken captive by them. When Paul speaks about being taken captive, the picture behind this word is, is that a victor is, is carrying behind him the, the spoils of war. Right? So Satan is using these hollow and deceptive philosophies to take people away from what they know and love and who they know and love, so the gospel and God, and bringing them over to him and to his kingdom. Satan is using these as tactics, as part of this eons age or old warfare that he, is, that he has carried out against God and his people. Now think about... These, these hollow and deceptive philosophies that we've talked about, if, if for only a moment, think about them and ask yourself, why are these so appealing to both new Christians and lifelong Christians? Why are they so appealing to people like you and me? Well, you and I, I think, both know and would readily admit that we have a sinful nature that lives in our heart. And when you and I become complacent with that which we know and love, the gospel, when we become complacent with the gospel and it becomes old hat, well, that gives our sinful nature a little more wiggle room to move around in our heart. And, and what is not just our sinful nature, but what do we want in general? We want to live lives that are full, don't we? We want to have lives that matter. We want to chase whatever the full life actually looks like. 
I mean, however you would define that, whatever full life looks like for you. The problem, though, is our sinful natures. They want that full life. They want the fullness of life apart from God and Christ. And so your sinful nature, when it gets the better of you, when you become complacent with the gospel, it chases after that fullness in, in human philosophy, or I should say human tradition and these elemental forces of the world. So manifesting and crystals and transcendental meditation and secret knowledge, right? Because all your sinful nature wants is it wants to be full. And the reason that we think that these things are good is because they seem to offer something that is more than what God does. Seem to offer something better than what God does. More enlightened, more knowledgeable, more culturally relevant, more politically correct. Really what we want is the fullness of life, our sinful nature anyway, the fullness of life apart from God in Christ, which is nothing other than to say we want to be gods ourselves. And if we can become gods unto ourselves, well then what need do we have for God himself? Rene Descartes said in the 17th century, I think, therefore I am. I think, therefore I am. Or to use the hollow and deceptive philosophy that Satan used in the Garden of Eden when he took Adam and Eve captive, you can be like God. You can be like God. When we become complacent with the gospel and start chasing after these hollow and deceptive philosophies, well, it's because we want to be God and not worship God. And then soon, these philosophies lead you to nothing other than a path of spiritual death. And so Paul the Apostle Paul, who sees this playing out before his very eyes in one of the churches that he helped start, he, he wants people to understand and to be on guard against these hollow and deceptive philosophies. And so in your service folder, I, I have, I think there's six things that I want you to keep in mind as we encounter these hollow and deceptive philosophies. And these, this is not the be-all and end-all list of things, but there's some things to keep an eye out for. Because there are a lot of things in these hollow and deceptive philosophies that sound Christian, that sound healthy, that sound like they come from the word of God, but they aren't. And so these kind of become a litmus test for how you guard against it. So this would be blank number one. Hollow, so I guess it's number two in your service folders. Hollow and deceptive philosophies, they completely lack substance. Completely lack substance. They really look good on the outside, but they are completely and totally dead on the inside. They don't actually go anywhere because they're apart from God. And if you and I remove God from our worldview, then we are building on the wrong foundation. We're building on sand instead of stone. And anything Jesus promises that you build on the wrong foundation will eventually crumble and fall. So Paul urges us that instead of hollow and deceptive philosophies, which have no substance, Instead, to build your life on Christ in whom all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you, you and me, we've been given that fullness. Okay, that's number one. The second blank. Hollow and deceptive philosophies lack value in curbing, curbing your sinful nature. We all know and would readily admit that we are at the same time sinner saint. Okay. And there are times when in that constant war that is waging for our hearts where the sinful nature wins and the saint loses out and we are led into sin. And if there is no solution, no solution for our sinfulness and our sinful nature, then we could never live the fullness of life that Christ has called us to. So hollow and deceptive philosophies have no solution for this sinful nature, but you know who does? God. And God offers it to you. Paul says this, 
In Christ you were also circumcised in the putting off of your sinful nature, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. In your baptisms, God gives you the solution to your sinfulness. It's Christ. And in your baptisms, you were buried with Christ in his death and raised with him through your earth or in his resurrection. Right? And it's in your baptisms where God, he calls you to the newness of life, a life that is full. Okay? Number three. Hollow and deceptive philosophies don't tie in with everyday life. They don't tie in with everyday life. They just simply, they really aren't practical. They just aren't the philosophies of this world, right? The philosophies of this world are written by people in ivory towers to combat something else that was written in an ivory tower. And really, I think most of the time, the philosophies of this world are written just to start fights. They aren't practical for people like you and me, but they sure do affect people like you and me, especially people who are less privileged than you and me. They start a lot of unnecessary fights. So these hollow and deceptive philosophies aren't practical for our everyday lives, but you know what is? The Word of God. Word of God. God gives you his word to have fullness, both theologically, so learning about who he is, and practically to know how it is that he wants you to live. Think of the book of Proverbs. The whole book of Proverbs is about life with God in his kingdom. Practical advice. So stick with the word. The fifth one. Um, hollow and deceptive philosophies are not internally, internally consistent. The philosophies of this world, in whatever way they manifest themselves, they are just logical dead ends, right? But the Bible, because of its source, because of who it comes from, is not only truth, but it is logical and it is reasonable and, and it's internally consistent. It's internally consistent. And the Bible proclaims truths to you like we are looking at today. In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Right, so I'm going to steal a line from earlier in the sermon that, that we believe and cling to the one who is the divine Lugus, the eternal word through whom all of the universe was created and in whom it lives and moves and has its being and that Christ is the reason why up is up and down is down and four plus four is eight and not 27 all day, every day. Christ is the way and the truth and the life and will always be consistent for you. Always. Next one. The hollow and deceptive philosophies don't satisfy the needs of the human heart. The philosophies that you see existing today, uh, they might appeal to our minds. They might even be exciting for us. But they don't speak to our whole being. Right? God created us to be creatures who are both logical and rational, and creatures of faith. He created us to experience the world and himself with both the head and what? And the heart, right? The head and the heart. And so God wants you to use both things with him. And philosophy only allows you to do one of them. Only allows you to do one, both head and heart. God says, God says, this is how you should function. And the, these hollow and deceptive philosophies don't allow you to do that. The last one, last one. Hollow and deceptive philosophies are truly just that. They are deceptive, right? They are deceptive. They simply lead you away from that which you are seeking. They lead you away from the truth. Now, not all philosophies are bad, right? There are some philosophies that exist which do and do stand in concert with the truths that God conveys to you in his word. But a philosophy becomes deceptive when it leads you away from that which you are seeking. 
when it promises satisfaction but only leaves you feeling empty, when it promises to fulfill you but only leaves you hungering and thirsting for something that can actually fill you, that can actually do that. And ultimately, these deceptive philosophies, they lead you only to a place, to a place of spiritual death. There is only one place where truth and a fully satisfactory life exist, and that's in Christ, in whom all of the deity lives in bodily form and who has given you his fullness. So the Apostle Paul maybe has one closing instruction for all of us today. He says, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live, continue to live in him, rooted and built up, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Lord Jesus, as we encounter these hollow and deceptive philosophies, keep and guard our hearts. Renew us in the strength of our baptism in which you brought us to the newness and fullness of life. Cause us daily to live in you and you in us. Build us and plant us deeply, deeply in the truths of your word, not in these hollow and deceptive philosophies for you. You are the one in whom we and the whole world live and move and have their being. You are the Lamb of God who takes away our sin and solidifies our eternity. It's in your name and for your glory. Amen.